take a break from our study in Nehemiah, but we're going to stay in the Old Testament. So you can turn to the book of Leviticus, and I'm not going to be reading anything at length in Leviticus, but I'm going to be referencing a few things, so you might want to thumb through it, but we'll be looking at the book of Leviticus. And I hope already you're kind of wondering, hmm, Leviticus, that's interesting. I think if we were to go around the room and kind of take a poll and ask, um, you know, what, what, what's the most recent book that you've been reading in your own personal devotions? I doubt anybody would say Leviticus. Maybe one or two, and if you did, I'd be really impressed and go, wow, good for you. And, you know, if I were to ask you all, you know, what's, what's your favorite book of the Bible? A lot of people might say, you know, maybe John or, or Hebrews or something like that. Um, maybe Proverbs or something but probably very few, if anybody, would say Leviticus. And, and I actually thought about this because we were actually having a conversation, Glenn and me and Brent, and um, I guess Chris wasn't there, but a few of us were having this conversation. We even like joke about, you know, sort of Leviticus is one of the more obscure parts of the Bible, right? Uh, almost compare it to like some of the genealogies. We know it's there, we know it's from God, but, you know, sometimes we don't know what to do with it and we'll often use it in that way. And, but, it, but it led me to just be in it myself this week, and so I've been reading it. Because uh, it had been a little while since I'd been through it, just honestly. And so, you know, I, I've, I've been reading it this week. Um, at the end of the day, we, we know Leviticus is divinely inspired. We know that, right? Inspiration isn't just for the New Testament. It's not just for select pockets of the Old Testament that seem to be edifying. But it's, it's given to us from God. And we all know that already. I'm not telling you something that we don't know. Um, but so tonight, I'm, I'm going to offer, I want to look at the book of Leviticus just broadly, in the broadest sense. I've been doing quite a bit of this lately because I think it can be helpful sometimes as a break from our more narrow studies of what we often do. And so I'm going to basically just offer four essential principles from the book of Leviticus. Um, and, I'm gonna, and, I, and I hope that at the end of it, there's maybe a little bit of a nudge, a little bit of a challenge for us to see what here is helpful and, and, and why, why we wouldn't read the, the book of Leviticus. Whether you're a new believer, whether you've been saved for a very long time, it's just it's helpful for us to go back to these books that we oftentimes we'll overlook, and so I hope to inspire you a little bit in that. And so just four, just four very simple principles, and I don't think I'll be very long tonight. Um, and so of these four, I want to begin with number one, that God is holy. The book of Leviticus tells us, shows us, demonstrates that God is holy. When you glance at what might be, again, sort of a, it, it might appear just sort of a dense collection of rules. Sometimes we think of the book of Leviticus that way, Books like Numbers and Deuteronomy and, and Leviticus, sometimes they just, we, we assume that they're these dense collections of rules. But remember, you know, the important principles here is that as we see these rules, they should tell us something. Because God never gives us things randomly. God doesn't give us things haphazardly. And so one of the things, as we think about all these rules, they should imply something, and that is, in this case, that God is holy. God is so holy that in chapter 10... Uh, two sons of Aaron, and again, we're not going to read it, but, but this is actually a familiar story for you, probably. Two of Aaron's sons went into God's presence um, with, with a sort of arrogant spirit, ignoring the commands that God had given. And do you remember what happened to them? They were struck down. They were struck down dead. And so, so that, again, it, there's this sort of incredible beauty of being God's presence and having communion with God, and yet we also remember always that God is holy and we must approach Him on His terms. So we see that in a really stark way here. I'm going to talk more about that and sort of getting to this point later, but, but that is something that we should always think about when we see the book of Leviticus, that our God is holy. 
holy beyond all of our wildest imagination, more than we could really articulate with human language. God warned these men, and yet they disregarded His word, and so He judged them in His holiness. So that's number one. God is holy. Number two, the second thing that I think that we can see just very clearly from just a survey of the book of Leviticus is that we are not holy. So if God is holy, if God is perfect and pure, we are not. We were made in innocence. We were made without any sin. But of course, that changed when sin entered the world with the fall in Genesis chapter 3. If we were already holy, we wouldn't need Leviticus. You ever thought about that? I mean, if we understood all of what it was to please God and to live well and to, to treat one another with love and respect, we wouldn't even need Leviticus. We wouldn't need, a whole, we wouldn't need much of the Bible. But these things are given to us to, come, to, to guide us, to show what is good. How should we treat one another? How should we treat our spouse? How should we treat um, people who would come and live among us? And all these different things that we all encounter in every civilization, every time of world history. And so God gives his commands to show us what is good, what is right. Because God is holy and we are not, we, we need these commandments. And so God gives us his commandments to show us good, to show us evil. Um, now some of these are merely for ritual purity, and we'll talk about that in a little while. But others are enduring principles of holiness, especially, for instance, you look at uh, chapter 18 which has uh, rules about sexuality and has rules about respecting family and things like that and, and adultery and all these different things. And so these things are enduring principles um, showing us, again, how we should live. But even these ritual uh, laws that are in here, you ever thought about, and, and you've probably grappled with some of this in Sunday school. If you've gone through the Gospel Project, you've grappled with some of this. Why does God give these rituals, the ritual purity? You know, and there's a whole bunch of them, Right? And some of them are very clear. Do not commit adultery. Okay, we get that. Do not take your son's wife. Do not take, you know, your daughter-in-law. So there's all these specific things. We get that. That makes more sense to us. But some of them are really specific. Wearing certain fabrics, eating certain foods. Why? Why? And uncleanliness. If you touch a dead body, you're not ceremonial clean. What, what is the point of all these? Not specifics, but broadly. Why does God give these to Israel? And secondarily, really, to us. Any thoughts? Who's, who's that, Miss Barbara? Is that you? Oh, back here, Miss Carla. To teach discipline? I think that that's got to be part of it, right? To, um, to sort of restrain, right? Yeah, that's probably a, a good thought, to restrain sin. And that's, I think, very important here, yeah, because we need it. What else? So, for instance, if you're wearing a, a, a clothing that has mixed, you know, if you're wearing polyester, in some sense, you might be violating one of these laws that says you can't mix certain materials together. And you say, well, what is the point about that? Why, why can't they eat certain animals? You know, why, why all of these things? You ever thought about that? A lot of times people will bring this up. Oh, you Christians, you, uh, you, you choose which commandments you want to obey, and you, and you disregard those that you don't want to. And, um, and you can see why they might say that, reading Leviticus, if you don't understand some of these things, how they fit into the covenantal context. Now, I won't chase that rabbit, but covenant here, the context is very, very important. And I always bring that up right away when someone asks those sort of questions. And they're, they're good questions. At the end of the day, yeah, Glenn? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's really helpful. I hope you all caught some of that. I mean, the covenantal context is very important because these things are not meant to be enduring in terms of some of the ceremonial things here. And I, and I, I wish we had time to talk about all this, but I wasn't really planning to. But at the end of the day, this was also, now, and Miss Carla mentioned discipline, there is a sense in which these things are meant to teach. All of this is meant to teach. Not merely don't do this, but also see this about God, see this about yourselves, see this about the world, and so on. But at the end of the day, even if, because there's some stuff we go, well, why, why would God call this animal unclean and this one not clean, and, or this one clean and this one unclean, and so on? At the end of the day, these, these were cultural symbols that would make Israel look unique. So what he's going to say in Leviticus at the very beginning is do not do as they did in Egypt. And he says do not do as the Canaanites have done. In other words, be distinct. Now as humans, we have a herd mentality, don't we? We just do. You know, you know just think about back when you were a teenager, the peer pressure, right? You, you want to fit in. No one wants to stand out. In the workplace, if you work in a place where you're around a lot of people, no, you don't want to stand out. We have a herd mentality. We want to blend in. And God says he wanted his people to stand out, to be unique, to look different. The clothes that they had would be different. The foods they ate. And at the end of the day, when we get to the New Testament, God's going to say it wasn't really about the animal. It wasn't really about this. And, you know, th- There's a purpose in teaching here, but at the end of the day, he wanted them to be unique, to be holy. Uniqueness is a part of the definition of holy. The other thing is because you'll realize, man, these things just touch every area of their lives. These commandments, they're so strict, and they are. And then at the end of the day, we'll also see that um, they were unable to keep these. And that's part of the purpose, too. But the whole point was just that, that God, our faith, should touch every area of our lives. Not just a moral component, not just a religious component, not just a certain time component, as if sort of Sunday's God's and maybe Wednesday's God's, but the rest of the week is, is mine. No, God says, I want every area of your life. Because I created you, created you for a purpose. So we could, we could drill into that a little bit more, but at the end of the day, I think it's good for us to see that. Number one, God is holy. Number two, we are not holy, and God is going to reveal that by showing even our inadequacy to fulfill all of these things, even if these things are good to teach the people of Israel in this stage of covenantal history. I think one sort of application on this before I move on to the third point is just if we're ever, and I think this is, this is easy, if all that stuff is a little bit obscure, let me say this. If you're tempted to think that, that our sin, that a particular sin in your life, a particular struggle you have, um, if, you tend to, if, you, if you find yourself tempted to think that our sin really doesn't matter that much, read Leviticus. Our sins do matter a lot. If you're tempted to think, oh, if I live this way, as long as I'm not hurting anyone, as long as, as, long as you know, I'm not actively abusing someone, or, or, or if no one knows about this private sin, no, no, our, our sins do matter a lot. And even further, so even, of course, that's, Leviticus speaks so clearly on this as its own, but we live here on the further side of Revelation. Don't we know even more how much our sin is worth that Jesus had to give his life? that he had to die to shed his own blood to pay for our sins. So God's grace is immense, and God's mercy is beyond, again, even our ability to articulate. But, but at the end of the day, we should never think lightly of sin. But rather, when we think about sin, we should think about the cost. In Leviticus, it's the blood of animals. In Leviticus, it's the strict code of rituals and festivals and all these things. 
But of course, on this side, when we think about the new covenant, we know that our Savior gave His blood. He gave His life. That is how costly sin was. It took the life of the Son of God. Jesus. So number three, well, let me go back and remind you. So number one was God is holy. Number two was we are not holy. Number three is God is gracious. God's grace is all over Leviticus. It's easy for us to, again, look at this and see this as some sort of strict code, and it is simply a a works righteousness, but at the end of the day, we have to understand this in the broader covenantal scheme here, and we see that God is gracious. The point of this book, first initiated by God, if you go to the very beginning, it says in verse 1, 1, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of me. So God initiates this. It's not like Moses is going, you know, God, can you please work something out here? We know, no, God initiates this. And he graciously provides a way for the people to have communion with him. Because God is holy. We are not. We are sinners, all of us, by nature and by our own acts. And so there's a problem here. God cannot simply just interact with sin. And because God is holy, sin is an affront to him. And so God is going to make this system as a way that the people of Israel can commune with him in his grace. And so God really organizes kind of three things, uh, three modes to make this possible, to allow us to allow humanity. Through, this is Israel, actually. I shouldn't even speak broadly of humanity. This is, this is for Israel, God's people. There's a way in which this speaks to us as the church, of course, but we can say God's people. He does three things to make this communion possible. Communion, fellowship. So not communion like the Lord's Supper, but fellowship. And so the first are these rituals. He assigns rituals. And some of these rituals are feasts that would remind God's people of that great acts that he did, delivering them from from slavery, uh, leading them through the Red Sea, all these sort of things, providing for them in the wilderness. So all these feasts would would remind. So there was that. He says, do these feasts, keep these holidays, basically. Uh, I'm requiring it for your good so that you remember the great things that I've done for you. That's sort of the first part of these rituals. But then there's also the sacrificial rituals, right? And there's two kinds of sacrifices. One of the sacrifices is a sacrifice of thanks. Grain offerings and these different sort of offerings is, God, thank you for giving us food. Thank you for giving us our harvest. Thank you for giving us fresh water. Thank you for giving us all these great blessings. So there was a sacrifice to basically just say, thank you, God, a praise offering. And then there was a sacrifice that was meant to show repentance, right? And to give restitution. So when sin was had, when people had sinned, something needed to be done about it. If indeed there was to be a connection between God and humanity. Blood was shed, right? Might be a goat, might be an an ox, it depends on the situation. But blood was shed to teach, going even back to the point Ms. Carla was saying, this, this, this teaching to show them that sin is costly. Blood must be shed, and again, preparing them for the cross that would eventually come as the final sacrifice. Um, The final part about the ritual that I would point out is really the key ritual, and that's the Day of Atonement. And that's in chapters 16 and 17, and most of us are familiar with this. So it was knowing that all of the sacrifices that are offered throughout the year are never going to be sufficient, and that they're scattered, and did they cover everything? So the Day of Atonement was meant to cover for the entirety of the community. All of Israel would be involved in this. And I won't go through all the details of what it looked like. Many of you are familiar with it. But it was, again, the the ritual to help allow 
for humanity, for Israel, to have communion, fellowship with God. The second thing that he did after the rituals was he created an intermediary. Who were the intermediaries between Israel and God? The priests. Yeah, yeah, good job. So priests, right? And priests, when we think about intermediary, it goes both ways. We recognize that, right? So the priest represents the people to God and then also represents God to the people. So there's this very important role for the priest. When you, if you look at the sort of standard code of morality and code of, let's just call it the code of living, for all of Israel, it's one way. And then the priest, it's even more because they're in this intermediary state, which is very, very important. Um, why don't we have priests today? Roman Catholics do, and that's actually part of the answer. Why, why don't we have, we have pastors, not the same thing. Okay, royal priesthood, right. And you know that language is used in the New Testament, right? Unpack that a little bit, Mickey. That's very good. That's right. That's right. That's right. So uh, did you all hear that? So because of the work of Christ, he became our permanent mediator. So we no longer need a priest. We no longer do sacrifices, right? I mean, we, we, we're not going to remove the baptism and put an altar up there, right? I mean, we, we call this an altar, but it's, y'all don't want this to be an altar, right? We're not cutting off heads and bleeding and stuff up here. We do that on the farm, right? Okay, we're not going to, it's not really an altar. We use that figuratively, right? We don't literally mean altar because Christ already did it. And uh, sorry if that was a nasty visual, but again, that was the point. It was supposed to be nasty, right? Like, you didn't want to do that, um, so anyway, but, uh, but yeah, we no longer have to because Christ was our final mediator. And, and yeah, I wish I had more time to go through because I would explain why Roman Catholics do, but we got to close. Um, so he had gave rituals, he gave intermediaries, all this so they could have fellowship. And then lastly, he gives them these, these purity standards for this people. If you are going to have fellowship with me, if you're going to have communion with me, you must be pure, you must live pure, knowing that grace is going to always be involved here. It's grace because God initiated and God's going to provide a way out, right? The sacrifice, that's grace. This is a sign of grace. If there was no grace involved, God could have just said, well, y'all are on your own. Don't come to me. Don't talk to me. Nope, I'm holy. You all are not. I didn't do that to you. But no, rather, he shows grace. He reaches out, shows forgiveness. The last one, and I won't have time to explain it, but number four was that God desired relationship with humanity broadly. And basically, my point here would be seeing how this connects to the cross. But that's the book of Leviticus. I hope you have just a few extra things that you can see why this book is helpful, why it's important. Some of the specifics are very helpful too. Uh, again, just to go read chapter 18 through 20 is very helpful. Read about the Day of the Atonement in chapter 16 and 17 and so forth. But um, an easy book for us to overlook and yet some very important principles. God is holy, we are not, and yet God is gracious, incredibly gracious if we will only run to him. Um, we'll close there. Any final thoughts on that? Anyone want to, you know, show me wrong and say, hey, Leviticus is my favorite book. No. Yeah. Leon. He quoted more from Isaiah. Isaiah was number one, but it might be after Isaiah. Maybe that's what it is, because he quotes Isaiah several times. But th- he does quote from Leviticus. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good thought, though. There's another hand. Yeah, Joy? I just, I appreciate the, the, the 
Yeah, and it is an important point that, again, it was meant to, that these sacrifices, at the end of the day, they would never fully satisfy, right? You know, even the Day of Atonement would never fully satisfy. If so, Christ wouldn't have had to come. He had to come if there was going to be real satisfaction. But it was meant to, so they required, they had to put their hand on the animal, right? I remember the first time, now some of you, you're going to say, oh, I saw this when I was three years old, but I, I grew up in California, okay, right? I grew up in the city, but when I was, when I was 19, I moved to the boonies, Okay? And I know I've said this many times, but it would, make, it would make Buncombe County look like New York City. Okay? I mean, this was backwoods. And so they were butchering a hog for my cousin's wedding, you know, and they, am I getting too graphic here? Go ahead and turn off the recording here. <laughs> and so, you know, 22 right between the eyes, 